Uh, welcome to Cato. My name is Thea Brook-Knight. I am the Associate Director for Financial Regulation Studies here, and uh, I have the pleasure of moderating today's discussion. Um, derivatives have been very much in the news and the subject of discussion, especially since the crisis, but they're an area that is not terribly well understood. There's been a lot of misinformation out there, um, a lot of competing viewpoints. What we'd like to discuss today is first, what are derivatives? Um, what do they do when they're working well? What are the risks associated with them? Um, and then move on to what was their role in the crisis? Um, and what are the proposals that have come out of, uh, of the crisis for how we can move forward? Uh, there's several provisions of Dodd-Frank that have what are considered to be solutions to risks posed by derivatives. And we're going to discuss whether those solutions were necessary, whether they improve our financial stability, or whether they uh, introduce other risks. So I'd like to introduce our guests today. Uh, to my left, we have Bruce Tuckman. He is with the New York University Stern School of Business. He's a clinical professor of finance there. Um, he previously was an assistant professor from 1988 to 1994. Prior to joining Stern, Professor Tuckman was a managing director and global head of research for Prime Services at Lehman Brothers and later at Barclays Capital, where he was also a member of the executive committee of that division. During his tenure, he oversaw significant improvements to the risk governance of the financing and prime brokerage business, as well as the development and implementation of an industry-leading portfolio margin product. Before his work in prime services, Professor Tuckman managed research groups across, across a wide range of cash and derivative product areas. He started his career at Solomon Brothers in U.S. fixed income arbitrage trading, and Professor, Professor Tuckman's current research focuses on public policy with respect to financial markets. Um, we recently published a paper here at Cato on derivatives that is available out in the hallway. We'd like to take a look at that. Um, and he's also the member of Risk Committee at a major derivatives clearinghouse. Um, to Professor Tuckman's left is Marcus Stanley. He's the policy director of Americans for Financial Reform. Uh, this is a major public in interest coalition supporting stronger financial reform. Uh, Mr. Stanley has a PhD in public policy from Harvard University. <clears throat> he previously worked as an economic and policy advisor to Senator Barbara, Barbara Boxer as senior economist at the U.S. Joint Economic Committee and as an assistant professor of economics at Case Western Reserve University. And to the far left is James Yorio. He's a former managing director and global head of currencies and commodities distribution at Barclays, currently in private life. At Barclays and Lehman Brothers, Mr. Yorio led various businesses in capital markets, including several years in Singapore. He managed the strategic review and integration of parts of Lehman and Barclays' fixed income business in 2009, and ran a distribution of currency interest rate and emerging market products, the senior trader of interest rate derivatives, and held senior roles across structuring, trading, and business management. So we're going to have just sort of a Q&A here up on the stage discussing these issues. Um, and after we discuss among ourselves, we'll open the floor for questions from the audience. Um, so I'd like to start with you, uh, Professor Tuckman. Can you just tell us first, what is a derivative? Yes, thank you. I think it's a good idea in a, a conversation like this to make sure we all know the same words and we use the same jargon. So I'll, let me just start very quickly with the example that I, I talk in the paper. So Anheuser-Busch <clears throat> makes beer. Uh, it knows it needs to buy wheat. So it might buy a wheat futures contract. It will say, I, have the, I am going to buy wheat through this contract, 5,000 bushels for $5 a bushel. 
So that's a derivative. And I'll give you three criteria for a derivative. The first thing, it's an agreement to exchange cash or goods in the future, right? So in the wheat futures case, it's clearly I'm going to buy wheat in the future. I'm going to give you cash, you can give me wheat in the future. Um, we use the word, I just defined for some words so we can use them for the whole time. So we define market risk as the price of wheat going up or down. And then there's the counterparty risk. I make the deal with someone to buy wheat, I have to make sure they, they um, honor that obligation. So we call that counterparty risk. Um, sometimes derivatives are done with an exchange. So they're traded over an exchange and there's a clearinghouse. So when Anheuser-Busch uh, makes this agreement, it's making with the clearinghouse. So the clearinghouse has the obligation. Uh, and the person who's selling the wheat uh, also faces the clearinghouse. That's called exchange or, or a um, central counterparty CCP uh, derivative. And then you could also have a bilateral derivative. So Anheuser-Busch makes, makes the deal directly with an agricultural producer. And the risk there, the counterparty risk, is one for the, <clears throat> one for the other. So anyway, so the first criteria of the derivative is an exchange of cash uh, and goods in the future. Uh, the second important part of a derivative is very little money is exchanged up front. So in the case of the wheat futures, you might have to, if you agree to buy wheat in the future for $5, you might have to put up a dollar in what we call margin to make sure that you're going to fulfill on your commitment. So that immediately means that derivatives are very leveraged positions, right? Because if you do $5 and the price goes up to up a dollar, so now it's worth $6, you've made a dollar on your dollar, so it's a 100% return. If the price goes down to $4, you've lost a dollar on your dollar, it's a minus 100% return. So derivatives are, by nature, very leveraged. And the last thing that's important about derivatives is they're, um, they have what we call the bankruptcy safe harbor. So if I lend money to someone normally in most transactions, uh, I lend money secured on a property or on a machine, and the person defaults, um, I don't have the right to march into that company and seize the machine to get back my loan. I have to wait and go through a bankruptcy process. Derivatives are different, and you have the right of someone default to tear up the contract right away, seize the collateral, and, uh, and use it for something else. So that's called a safe harbor provision. So I'll just say one more thing, which I think is important for this discussion, is that there are lots of things that are not derivatives. So if you buy a bond, you're paying money upfront for something in the future, and if there's a bankruptcy, you've got to go through the court. And particularly relevant for this discussion, um, securitizations are not, I don't consider derivatives. So in the big part of the financial crisis was buying a big portfolio of mortgages, uh, mortgage loans, putting them into a package, and then selling pieces of those packages to investors. Those are essentially cash securities. You pay upfront for the total value of that thing, and the investors get the money uh, later on in a bond. And if there's a bankruptcy, you have to go through a process. So securitizations would not be derivatives in my three definitions. So I think I'll stop there. Um, so Mr. Arrow, if you can talk about how derivatives are typically used, how they're typically traded, sort of day-to-day. -day. <clears throat> well, it's very uh, broad-based. There's, um, uh, as Bruce mentioned, there, there are commodity underlying derivatives, uh, which uh, the producers of those commodities would use. Um, or uh, there are interest rate derivatives. Um, there are foreign exchange derivatives. And they're really like any, any equity derivatives, any type of, any type of financial asset um, or commodity type of asset um, uh, is, can be derivatized, so to speak. And so uh, people use them mostly for hedging purposes um, and for levered type of uh, investments. Uh, so you have the large asset managers that use uh, derivatives to uh, 
get exposure to uh, different currencies, uh, to get exposure to interest rates using derivatives. Uh, you have uh, corporations who use them to hedge their both input and output. So uh, you can have a commodity producer sell what they sell forward uh, what they're what they're producing uh, to hedge their uh, cash flow stream going forward. Um, and they're uh, used in daily life by people who want to have uh, financial exposure or optionality around equity products. So if you want to, to buy options on on equities, so they're really used in many different forums and used by uh, many types of uh, institutions uh, to hedge and to invest. Um, Shannon, can you tell us a little bit about why derivatives pose particular risk? What are the, the risks inherent in them and why are they a risky asset? Sure. Um, so uh, Dr. Tuckman already described one of the risks that I think is critical, uh, which is that derivatives... Uh, contain a lot of embedded leverage. Derivatives make it much easier to get leverage uh, and make <clears> that <throat> leverage less visible. And leverage is kind of, uh, derivatives have been called weapons of financial mass destruction. Uh, leverage is kind of the dynamite of financial uh, ex exposures or financial products uh, because uh, leverage multiplies your gains on one side, but it greatly multiplies your, your losses on the other. Uh, so derivatives make it possible to get uh, leveraged commitments uh, for very little money up front, um, and that can create very large dangers. Uh, I think this, the second risk or danger is that derivatives can make balance sheets much more difficult to understand. Um, balance sheets, interpreting a balance sheet always involves some prediction of the future in finance, uh, but derivatives can make that much more complicated. It's not even clear when you enter into a derivative whether it's an asset or a liability, whether you're, gonna, whether you're committing to owe money or to get money. And in order to even figure out that baseline question, you've got to do what can be some very complex prediction and modeling of future prices. A uh, third risk and danger in derivatives is that they increase financial interconnectedness. Because derivatives aren't a specific asset, they're a contract with somebody to pay you based on the future value of that asset. So when I buy an asset, I've got a, I've got a connection. When I buy a stock, I've got a connection to the value of that company, so that's one financial interconnection. But when I buy a derivative based on that stock that will pay me off based on the value of that stock, I've got two connections. I'm still connected to the value of that stock, but I'm also connected to the credit of the person who has promised to pay me based on that stock. And since the major derivatives dealers are <clears throat> the biggest, most central players in the global financial markets, those interconnections to those derivatives dealers uh, turn out to be very important and potentially a major source of systemic risk. And finally, um, an, a final thing that derivatives do, which I think is a little more complicated and involved, is they take what would be idiosyncratic risks and they plug them into publicly traded markets, into, into market indexes. Uh, imagine the difference between owning your house, which is one particular house and is going to fluctuate and vary in price depending on a lot of things that are particular to your house, uh, versus owning an exposure to uh, the general price index of houses in Washington, D.C. It's a very different thing. And this, this creates what you could call the mark-to-market problem uh, that you have very, very uh, correlated exposures that as, as financial market prices vary, as they do a lot, 
uh, all of a sudden a lot of people can get in trouble at once. Um, so these, these four things, I think, do create a lot of risks around uh, derivatives. And they're, they're sort of behavioral risks in a lot of ways. It's very easy to describe in the abstract how derivatives can reduce risk, and they can be used that way. Uh, but the truth is that when you've got a product that is hard for other people to understand and, make, and makes it very easy for you to get leverage that multiplies your uh, potential gains, there are a lot of temptations to use that in a, a very risky way. Um, and we can give lots of examples of that, and I will. <laughs> so now that we've touched on risk and what derivatives are, Professor Tuckman, can you tell us what your, uh, what your view of the role of derivatives was in the crisis? Right. Can we have that? Uh, I prepared one slide yeah, to let's talk about that. Yeah, let's see if we can bring this up. And uh, I apologize. These might not be in order, so we might have to <laughs> through a couple to get uh, the right slide. Sorry about this. No, that's, that's the wrong. I think you have to go back. Yeah. All right, it should be the next one. Yes. All right, there we are. Okay, so I want to just give my view here that um, I don't agree with the statement that derivatives were a major cause or trigger of the financial crisis. Um, so I'll say, you know, where I think they played a role and, and where I didn't think they played a role. But I'm also not trying to tell you, give my view here of the financial crisis, right? Just how derivatives played a role and that I think it was relatively limited. So the full statement, derivatives caused or triggered, is, is a gross exaggeration. So um, if we think, um, I don't need to look back so much. Uh, hopefully you can see it. So the basic problem with financial crisis is that from 2004 to 2007, uh, investment in mortgage securities, particularly low-quality mortgage security, increased on a more and more levered basis. So people took leverage, mostly in non-derivative form. And we can get into details how it did. <clears throat> For those who know, it's mostly these uh, um, the CIVs, you know, ABCP, asset-backed commercial paper, um, using, instead of doing loans, doing AAA tranches. So they took leverage in non-derivative form in mortgage securities and in more and more riskier, in riskier mortgage securities, these subprime securities. So that was going on uh, all the way up to September 15, 2008. And I show just all the, all, the, all the downgrades and all the failures we had through September 15, 2008. You see it's quite a list. I mean, it's a list of the largest originators in the United States. And of course, Bear Stearns and Merrill Lynch and the monoline insurers, AMBAC and MBIA, uh, were downgraded. Uh, we had banks have uh, large losses. I put just Citigroup up as an example, but lots of banks had losses um, because of their levered position, mostly non-derivative. And I'll qualify that in one minute uh, when I get to the end of the slide. Um, and the Fed, of course, is reacting to those conditions and to the failures by lowering the Fed's funds rate from five and a quarter to two percent and starting these. Um, extraordinary liquidity program, uh, uh, programs. So my point is that the <coughs> crisis was well underway before derivatives appeared in any sense, except this one caveat I'll give later on. And then we had Lehman's failure on September 15, 2008. Lehman did not fail because of derivatives. It also had a large non-derivative levered exposure to real estate and commercial real estate um, products. There were two major derivatives things that happened with Lehman. 
Uh, one was because, uh, as, um, as Marcus was saying, once Lehman failed, all the people that had derivatives with Lehman had to scramble around to replace their hedges. So that was uh, this first thing, what I call the liquidation of the derivatives books. And the second thing is people had bought and sold insurance on Lehman itself. So when Lehman failed, the people who had bought insurance were going to collect money from the people who had sold insurance. It turns out those two things had no systemic effects. So the liquidation of the derivatives books was messy. It was really nasty few days. And when we hopefully at the end, we'll talk about what changes we want to make in derivatives markets. I think we should make some changes so it's not as messy as it was. But markets worked. I mean, they traded and people traded swaps throughout the entire time, even though it was quite, uh, again, it was quite a mess. Uh, very few derivatives counterparties even noted on their annual reports or their quarterly reports that they lost so much money against Lehman that it was a material loss in these, uh, in these um in these liquidations. So even though that involved, that was kind of the first time in my mind derivatives appeared in the crisis, that was not a systemic issue. And it turned out the settlement of the CDS wasn't either. There was a total of between, originally people were very much afraid because the total outstanding of CDS was very large, but the actual amount of insurance payments from buyers of insurance, to, from sellers of insurance to buyers of insurance was six to eight billion dollars. So it was, not, uh, it was not a very big deal. Uh, and then of course the next day, we have AIG failing. And AIG <coughs> is kind of the first time where derivatives really uh, have a role because AIG failed half in part because of derivatives. It had written insurance on uh, low-quality mortgages uh, and half uh, with the securities lending business, which we don't need to go into detail, but it had, that was in its insurance businesses. We can talk about that if people want. So half of AIG's failure was due to... Um, was due to derivatives. Now, of course, we don't know what effect that would have had because at this point, the Fed had stepped in and, and uh, sort of saved, saved everybody. But if we look sort of um, ex ante, if we look at the exposures that derivatives counterparty had to AIG, um, they rate, you know, for the big counterparties, it was from 1% to sort of 7% of equity was the largest one. So it wasn't an enormous amount of exposure. I mean, large, but sort of not a, a crippling amount of exposure to those, um, those transactions. Um, and then I sort of make one note here, and this is actually one statistic, it's not in the paper. Um, the amount of insurance that uh, AIG wrote on subprime was about 6 to 6% 6 of total subprime issuance in 2004, 2005. So it wasn't as if they were sponsoring the entire subprime underwriting business themselves. So my general view is the crisis was sort of well underway before derivatives came in. The derivatives came in in a few places where they turned out were not part of systemic risk. And, uh, and AIG, of course, they were quite important. They were important, <clears throat> in the, super important in the failure of AIG. But that total story doesn't justify derivatives caused or triggered the financial crisis. I want to put one caveat, though, in what I say. There are these other things, which are called synthetic CDOs, which are a derivative form. You write insurance on mortgages, but this time in derivative form. Um, and, and that the banks were doing. So Citibank was certainly doing, doing a lot of this, and that was around. Now, the thing is, though, that it's hard to get numbers on this, but this was kind of 8 to 15% of all mortgage residential risk. But that includes the hedges. So that includes when Citi bought, bought insurance for itself. So to the extent that people were selling insurance, like sort of hedge funds or smaller places, people were selling insurance to Citi. 
city was being made safer by those. So this 8 to 15% is sort of the total risk, but a lot of that included hedges, so that's not going to, um, that's not going to uh, be part of such a huge part of the systemic uh, issue that just general overleverage to mortgages. So if you look at this picture, I have in my mind, if you want to make the statement that derivatives made the crisis 5% worse than it would have been otherwise, you know, I can live with that. I don't know what the number is exactly, but it's not going to be that derivatives caused or triggered the crisis. So that would be my explain view. a little bit why it's important that this risk include, includes hedges, just be a little bit more. I mean, because I think well, that's part up, of how derivatives are <clears throat> used. Is the, right, but if you see, we don't really know. When we have these securities, we don't know how they're being used. So if the derivatives were being all taken, by, let's say banks use these derivatives to increase their leverage. So they all bought more exposure to mortgages from derivatives, then that would be additive to the rest of the leverage that they took, which I was talking about earlier on. But if they use the derivatives actually to hedge some of the risk away, then it actually takes away from the total amount of risk that they were bearing. Right. So it kind of matters when we look at that number how it was being used. Okay. Great. Now, Dr. Stanley, I think you have a different view on the role of derivatives in the crisis. Yeah, and this is going to take me a while because <laughs> the truth is that derivatives were so involved in the crisis, they were so entangled with the crisis, uh, that it takes a little while to unpack all the ways in which they, they impacted the crisis. And I'll just say, before I start, if, you, if anyone's looked at Ben Bernanke's uh, book, The Courage to Act, he about a third of that book is devoted to kind of a blow-by-blow -blow description of the crisis. And in that central third of the book, he refers to derivatives 22 different times. And he refers to them in connection with Bear Stearns, with Lehman, with AIG, with Goldman Sachs, uh, with Morgan Stanley, and uh, probably a couple of other places I've, I've forgotten. So the, the story of derivatives in the, in the crisis is a, a complicated one. I, I want to go through a couple things that Bruce uh, specifically said here, and then I want to kind of step back and look at the overall macro picture of derivatives with that slide. Um, so uh, first thing, uh, maybe we'll take in reverse here and talk about these synthetic securitizations uh, for a minute. I want to, when, when Bruce talked about the definition of, of a derivative, he, um, he said that a securitization is not a derivative because it's an asset you buy and sell. Uh, in, in some sense, that's true, but the pairing of the use of derivatives in structuring securitizations and assets allows you to do a lot more and to pack a lot more embedded leverage and implicit risk into securitizations than you otherwise could. Um, it's kind of like saying, saying that a securitization is not a derivative, it's, it's kind of like... Um, saying that sugar is not a dessert. It's true, you know, a dessert is a food, but, uh, you know, they are foods characterized by having a lot of sugar in them. Um, so these synthetic securitizations, uh, there, there was a good paper done out of the Philadelphia Fed a couple of years ago on the subprime CDO market, which was really the epicenter of the toxic assets in the crisis. And this was a $640 billion market of securitizations, things people bought and held on their balance sheet, that took a two-thirds write-down in its value. I mean, think about that for a second. $640 billion worth of assets that people bought, and they had to write down two-thirds of the value, $400 billion in losses. Now, what these guys did is they looked at what these, these synthetic CD, what, sorry, what these uh, subprime CDOs uh, were made of, the collateral that, that was included in those, um, in those securitizations, and they found out that about one-third 
of that collateral was made up of credit default swaps with synthetic. Um, and they also found that the more synthetic collateral you had in one of these CDOs, the worse it performed. And by the, the years right before the crisis, 2006 to 7, about half of the collateral in that market was credit default swaps. Now, what those CDSs allowed you to do is they allowed you to replicate the economic exposure, to multiply the economic exposure uh, from these bad or subprime mortgages uh, considerably beyond what it otherwise would have been. Uh, and they also created more of a demand for product based on these mortgages. And in part, that's related to the hedge nature of it, because when you believe you're hedged, you know, you're willing to expose yourself uh, to more of these risks. So I, I would disagree that the synthetic market was unimportant or that it wasn't fundamentally related to, uh, to derivatives. Um, and on the Lehman bankruptcy, there, there's a very good uh, paper that the, the Fed, New York Fed just came out with uh, about a year or two ago called The Failure Resolution of Lehman Brothers. Sorry, I'm, I'm reading the quote off my, uh, my phone here. But, um, but they, they found that, the, that in Lehman Brothers' bankruptcy, there was only a recovery of about, about a quarter of what creditors claimed they were owed. So since... Um, that implies there was about $360 billion that creditors claimed they were owed. Um, Three-quarters of it was not recovered, so that, that's about $250 billion in losses. And I'm just going to quote from the summary of that paper. These are very dry writers because they work for the New York Fed. Uh, but uh, they said that for over-the-counter derivatives transactions where much of the complexity of Lehman's bankruptcy resolution was rooted, Creditors' recovery rate was below historical averages for failed firms uh, comparable to Lehman. In other words, much of the complexity of the Lehman bankruptcy, which dragged on for years, was connected to over-the-counter derivatives, and recovery rates were particularly low in that area. And they went on to say, the settlement of over-the-counter derivatives was a long and complex process occurring on different tracks for different groups of derivatives creditors. And, of course, they separate out the over-the-counter derivatives is different than the clear derivatives. Uh, Bruce is right that the clear derivatives book was wound up pretty quickly, uh, but over-the-counter is much more complicated. And I'd also note that Lehman took significant losses in resolving that over-the-counter derivatives book, in part because derivatives weren't trading in a very uh, liquid way at that time. Um, and then I want to put up that slide just to um, take a, a step back. Okay, so I don't know if uh, this is a somewhat busy slide, and there are a lot of lines here, but what this slide shows is, is two things. Uh, it's basically showing the size of the global mar derivatives market from 1998 to 2014. And it shows two things. One is the notional amounts outstanding of derivatives, which is kind of a measure of, uh, you can think of it as the total uh, pool of assets that you're making a bet on. The, the notional value of the, the derivatives, uh, the, the assets that you're referencing in your derivatives. So it gives you kind of a, a sense of the scale and size of the derivatives market. That's the red line on top. And if you look just at that red line, you can see that this goes, and this is only over-the-counter derivatives. It isn't the exchange-traded derivatives that include a lot of the commodity derivatives that have traditionally been used by you know, wheat farmers, beer manufacturers, a lot of those. This is over-the-counter derivatives that are done by the big banks that are mostly financial. Uh, and you can see that 
it goes along at $100 trillion for a while, which is still a lot of a notional market value. But then starting in the early 2000s, it explodes. It grows five-fold in six years, from $100 trillion to almost $700 trillion in the years right leading into the crisis. And this tells you two things. There's something derivatives in, in the broad sense that Bruce mentioned have been around for thousands of years, okay? People have been making future financial commitments for a very long time. Farmers, you know, th this is, has been part of the financial sector since time immemorial. But something very new and different is going on right before the financial crisis with this explosion of financial over-the-counter derivatives. Um, and it's happening at, at really an unprecedented speed and rate. Now, this blue line on the bottom uh, is another metric um, of derivatives exposure. And what this is is the gross credit exposure. And you could think of this as kind of a measure of the money people actually owe each other on derivatives, the extent to which people are actually exposed to each other financially on derivatives. And you could see it's actually much, much lower than the notional value. Like um, you can see in 2004 there, I'm making uh, bets on $200 trillion worth of assets, but I have less than $2 trillion worth of real money that I expect to owe people. So that's like a 1% ratio, right? I'm making bets on hundreds of trillions in assets, but the amount of money that I think I owe and that I'm exposed to is maybe 1% of that, okay? Well. Look what happens to that blue line in the two years just prior to the crisis. In, in December 2006, people think they've got about $2 trillion worth of total exposure on derivatives, which is a lot, right? But this is spread all through the global financial system. So presumably people see this, they're planning for it, they can uh, handle it. Uh, between two, December 2006 and December 2008, this goes up from $2 trillion to $5 trillion. So that's $3 trillion materializing in new exposure over two years. And this is more exposure than has appeared in the entire derivatives market for like the, the previous decade. is just appearing in these two years. Um, and you remember what I said about the risks of derivatives. Uh, they let you take a lot of leverage without putting up much upfront money. And you can see here, you know, people thought, the actual money involved was only 1% of what they were betting on. Uh, they make it hard to understand or predict your future exposures. Well, you know, you can just see that happening in real time in this graph. People have taken, you know, a lot of implicit leverage, and all of a sudden these exposures are materializing. So you get this scramble uh, of people looking to protect themselves against these extra exposures, demanding margin from their counterparties, uh, trying to cancel out their derivatives with people who are the central dealers who they think might be in trouble. Um, and this was very connected to the financial crisis, which fundamentally was a liquidity run on the markets. So I've said a lot. I'll, uh, I'll stop with that. <laughs> so I want to go on to you, Mr. Rowe, in a minute, because you were actually at Lehman when all, sure. all of this happened. But I want to come back to Professor Tuckman for a minute. And just uh, do you have a response to what Dr. Stanley has argued? Um, yeah, so as far as the, so it, it is the complicated because of these securitizations that have tranching, which is a lot of leverage, and we're not calling that derivatives. And I just want to say it's not a semantic thing that we're not calling that derivatives because there are different 
rules that were applying to fix the various markets. So we'll talk about mandatory clearing. That's used to fix derivatives. No one's thinking of clearing securitization. So there is a reason. That's not responding to anything. It's just a clarification comment. So that's why we're not considering these tranching. These synthetics, synthetic CDOs certainly were derivatives by, by any standard. And I did my best to sort of quantify the effect. It's not easy to do. And I found it sort of small, even though some of the deals are certainly, um, <clears throat> certainly horrific. Um, the, the, the issue about how badly Lehman's estate did in, the, in this, what I agree, was a completely messy liquidation is unquestionable. They lost a lot of money doing that, and the, not only the derivatives counterparties, but the other creditors. Um, I don't consider that an enormous systemic issue, though. I think it's messy, and we should fix that. There's no reason we should, you know, in advanced markets like, like we have, we should have that, that sort of mess, and we'll talk again about things. But I just don't think of that as a systemic issue and adding to the, adding to the crisis. Um, I was holding off the, the hard to understand and the transparency stuff. I think we would talk about that later with some mm-hmm. of the things, and I agree completely with that. And it's our financial system is massively too opaque, by entity, but I think we'll come back to that, so I agree with that part. And then as far as with the graph, um, I want to say two things, not, not, not to respond first, just so people don't have heart attacks or nightmares or can't sleep at night. So uh, <laughs> the first thing, so these notional numbers, of course, of course, don't net if you're long or you're short. So if I agree to buy something and sell something, you just add, so it looks like two instead of zero. So that's in the notional numbers. That doesn't mean the increase isn't what it was. It just means that the don't have a nightmare about the absolute number. Um, and, then the, uh, and then for the uh, gross exposure, again, just again, I'm not right now commenting on the increase, but just don't have a nightmare of those numbers either because that exposure is collateralized. So you put collateral against that exposure. We don't know exactly how much of collateral is, but it's, it's a lot of collateral against it. So, so the only response I want to give is my story of the crisis you know, that I gave, not of the crisis, of the derivatives in the crisis, was that mortgage, mortgage investments on a very levered basis went up dramatically, and that involved hedging, a lot of extra hedging requirements, which we see there. So I, don't, I think this is just a manifestation of the problem we had with excess investment in mortgages on a leveraged basis that required a lot more hedging and not, and not that this what was the crisis. The crisis was happening because of something else and being hedged or responded to by this graph. So let's, let's talk about what, what life was like at Lehman at this time. <clears throat> well, I, uh, firstly, I would say that uh, there's, there's definitely plenty of blame to go around, right, in terms of, uh, <clears throat> in terms of the... Uh, the crisis and what happened, and you know the point on leverage and the point on derivatives. You you could look at a, at and I think this is Bruce's point. Is you could look at other asset classes and see the same type of escalation of leverage in bank balance sheets, um, uh, and that you know the, these things combined really combined uh, to give us a crisis. So there's plenty of blame to go around in terms of how these uh, these things happen. Um, so and so it feeds into kind of what. Uh, what happened and what I observed at, at uh, my time at Lehman Brothers, and, and the, the first thing that, the first inkling of, of an issue. I mean, there are plenty, plenty of, uh, of inklings, if you will. But um, the it was the Friday before Lehman went bankrupt, which was that um, I was at the office at seven o'clock in the evening, and as I was walking out. <clears throat> you know, we my responsibilities included the foreign exchange and foreign exchange derivatives. And we were okay. We were in a good spot. We were, a, we were in an okay position with collateral and with our, our clients and our exposures. 
Um, and as I was walking out uh, of the office on Friday night, then I walked past our financing desk, our repo desk. And when you see the financing desk in the office at 7 o'clock on a Friday night, then you know there's a serious problem. <laughs> and, uh, and you know that there's a margin call on Monday. And, and that's what I mean around there, there was plenty of leverage. There were lots of other assets that were levered that, that really had a cascading effect. And <clears throat> I knew to be worried at that point when you know, they were valuing mortgage securities, valuing a bunch of different securities to make sure that they knew what their position was and what margin they had to call for on, on Monday morning. And then we know what happened after that. So that, that became a big issue. Now, on Saturday um, of that weekend, I, I got a call from the head of our business and said, we need you to go to the Fed. And we're going to try and pare down. And this is something we'll probably talk about a little, a little later. And goes into the point of the gross exposures is we need you to go help pare down the exposures that we have. So go to the Fed and figure out if we can collapse the derivative portfolio, uh, so the longs versus shorts among different counterparties. And um, I said, that's impossible. <laughs> like In 48 hours, that's just impossible to do, uh, which turned out to be the case. They said, all right, well, let's just hold off and let's not do that because it's, it's literally an impossible task to do. And that is part of the problem with the, with the gross exposures, is that if you let it get out of control, you, don't, you have too many positions where you can't actually, it's just too hard to do something in a crisis, or it's too hard to, to get your, a handle on what your, your total exposure is. So that was something that we, we couldn't do. And then obviously on Monday, it was massively chaotic. Um, and what was interesting about it was that the... Um, well, part of the problem was that some, some Lehman entities declared bankruptcy and some didn't. So you had a lot of uncertainty as to what derivative positions, financing positions um, that were either in uh, bankruptcy, bankruptcy declared entities or not. So it was very difficult. It was chaotic, totally chaotic. Um, and <clears throat> what happened from uh, my seat was that... Uh, the OTC derivative positions went into uh, a you know went into a legal process. So we, we just had a, there a formal process that is that we we have in place. Uh, you declared what collateral you had and there, and, and uh, what uh, uh, what we had that people uh, people gave us default notices. So that's called a default notice. They they say that you know you've defaulted on your position. We're we're asking for our collateral back and we're asking to collapse the positions or to close the positions down. So that process started happening, and it was reasonably orderly. And what that meant also is that clients had to then replicate their positions. So they had to go and find another dealer to, if they had a swap on with us, then they had to go find another dealer to replicate that position. So that started happening, and actually, like, reasonably orderly. So we'd get default notices. We would figure out what collateral position is. There's a, a couple of days that you have to figure out your balance, and it happened reasonably uh, orderly. Um, and, but the issue became not necessarily from derivatives, but what I saw was because of, the, because of the declaration of bankruptcy, what happened was people didn't want to pay us just normal way of business, right? So if you had a settlement that was coming in, uh, nobody wanted to pay you that money because if they had something coming back a day later, they didn't want to lose the cash. So you have what's called fail to pay and fail to receive. That's the, that was a big issue for us. 
in our business, we had along the order of like the two days later, we had the order of 27 billion failed to pay and 25 billion failed to receive. I mean, these are massive actual, these are actual cash numbers. So they're massive positions and that, and that caused a, that caused a serious problem for us, which uh, took weeks to sort out with the help of the, help of the Fed, with the help of actually with of Barclays coming in. So they helped us uh, to manage the cash, position, cash positions. Um, Citibank was a clearing bank of us, and they had taken some hits on what they had. They also were trying to un- unglue the system. So it was all these things that came together where you had the bankruptcy process, the leverage, and margin calls happening, not just in derivatives, but in all these other asset classes that really made it massively chaotic. Plus, which I think is, the Fed is really addressing um, with trying to simplify some of the financial institutions and to have a plan around how they, uh, how their bankruptcy would uh, proceed in the future, you had this complication of all of these, uh, all of these uh, subsidiaries, some bankrupt, some not, and so that that created some real problems. And I do think that's a major part of financial reform is to make sure that that institutions are cleaned up and, and they don't have they have that what they call the living will. And so they, you, know, you know how to resolve institutions uh, going forward. And before we move on to talk about Dodd-Frank, I think this is going to be relevant. Can you tease out the distinction between an exchange-traded derivative and an OTC derivative and how those are used differently? Because I think it's going to matter for the rest of our conversation. Well, yes, sure. And an exchange-traded derivative is one that is on an exchange. So it's on the, uh, it, it, your counterparty is the uh, Chicago Mercantile Exchange, for example, or the CBOT. So you're as a if you uh, if you transact a derivative contract, then that goes on an exchange and it's clear. There are rules on margining. Uh, there are rules on both initial margin, variation margin, and there's also a very clear uh, process uh, of default. Uh, and then the OTC, which is over the counter, is when two counterparties get together and they say, "I want to buy. I want to receive fixed on an interest rate swap." Uh, I want to pay fixed on interest rate swap, and they have a contract with each other to do that. So that's governed by uh, usually an ISDA contract where they have uh, the, the trade on with each other, and they exchange collateral or they have, they have credit risk to each other as a, as a result of the transactions. And can, I, can I just add yeah, one thing to that? So the kind of justification for over-the-counter relative to exchange is customization of terms. So in the, exa- in the paper, uh, I give the example of someone who wants to buy aluminum but want the aluminum in the local price on the third Wednesday of every month. So, you know, you can't get that kind of customization. Now, of course, the problem is that it's, it's pre- pretty clear that a lot of dealers have tried to make the argument that something needs to be customized. Maybe that doesn't just because they can, they can make more money that way. But that's at least the, you know, the idea of when we want to have over-the-counter. And so it's not a one or the other. There are pluses and minuses to both. So let's move on and talk about, now that we've talked about derivatives, the crisis. Can I say one more thing? Sure. <clears throat> one more thing about OTC derivatives is that it's, that's different from an exchange is that there are no or had been no uh, rules in place around collateral. So it wasn't very clear and consistent in terms of how collateral was, uh, was uh, transferred between counterparties. So that, that's one major difference, which if you had a counterparty that didn't, AIG, for example, that didn't post-collateral, you could take unrestricted, completely unrestricted leverage uh, on 
if you're selling a credit default stock, for example. So that's one big difference. Mm -hmm. Whereas as an exchange, you're required to have collateral and initial margin up front. And, uh, and Im importantly, you, you know, in the over-the-counter mar uh, market, you weren't required to have collateral up front. But as soon as people started getting in trouble, there would be a mass collateral yeah, scramble. Right. 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 So, exactly. so uh, people would show up at your door when you were in the most trouble saying, I need my money now. Uh, basically, because I'm I'm trying to move my risk away from you because you're in trouble, and in the yeah. at the the clearinghouses force you even when things look good when you make that transaction mm -hmm. right at the beginning to put some money there, and if that process is managed right, which is a big big if, it should make derivatives markets less pro cyclical. Let's let's move yeah. on and talk about. Uh, Dodd-Frank and reform that has been either proposed or enacted in response to this. So uh, can you just give us an outline of what are the reforms that are in Dodd-Frank? Yeah. Uh, so the first thing I would say is that Dodd-Frank, I would say, in many ways, took a light touch to the derivatives market. And uh, people will perhaps roll their eyes at that because there have been a lot of pages of rules put out on derivatives under Dodd-Frank. And there's a long, complicated... Uh, set there, there's a long complicated part of the Dodd-Frank Act about derivatives but a lot of that complexity actually comes from a decision that was made uh, that Dodd-Frank was not going to ban any derivatives it wasn't going to ban any derivatives really uh, it, it wasn't even going to put say limits on the absolute number of derivatives you could have it was just going to require uh, better risk management and better transparency of derivatives. So uh, the, the, the major uh, components that were done in order to do that is, first of all, um, you have uh, a requirement that all derivatives have to be margined up front. So this, this reduces the amount of, of leverage that you can, can get. People have to put up that collateral, that down payment, on their potential derivatives exposures. And, uh, for the more customized kinds of derivatives, and Dodd-Frank let you continue with customized over-the-counter derivatives, uh, that's done through, through a margin requirement uh, on those over-the-counter derivatives. And for more standardized derivatives, that's done through a mandate that those more standardized derivatives have to be cleared, and the clearinghouse is going to, uh, to require the, the margin. And in terms of transparency, there were a number of things done uh, one was to require exchange trading uh, for those more standardized derivatives. And exchange trading is actually a little bit different than clearing. This gets uh, complicated. <laughs> but, um, but this is basically uh, that the derivatives had to be traded on exchanges where the clients could see actionable prices, just like you can go to the stock market and know that if there's uh, a quote out there, that quote is public, IBM is $50 a share, if I pay $50, I will get a share of IBM. That's actually very different than calling up a dealer and negotiating a price and not knowing what the general price in the market is, which was the situation in, in over-the-counter derivatives a lot of the time. So uh, there's a mandate for exchange trading, and there's also a mandate for, for reporting to regulators and the public on your uh, derivatives positions. Um, so those are, are the, there, there are some other elements, you know, there, there are a number of other elements, but those are uh, the core elements in terms of better transparency, uh, clear, better clearing and margining uh, that were done in, in Dodd-Frank. So, so let's talk about 
the concept of mandatory clearing that's part of the Dodd-Frank reforms. Um, I know that you have some views on this, Professor Tuckman. Can you talk about this a little bit? Right. So uh, I have an abbreviated list of eight things I don't like about mandatory clearing. <laughs> but before I, before I get into that, um, let me just say I'm, I'm a big fan of voluntary clearing. Clearing has great advantages. So it might be worth just spending a minute on sure. why we like clearing as a thing. First of all, if you're a small counterparty, it's great to outsource risk management to a clearinghouse, right? So how is I, as a relatively small entity, going to figure out which counterparties are good for the money or not, how to figure out how much margin to take, et cetera. So it's great to be able to outsource that. Uh, I just want to make the comment, for big players, that's not important. They have to do that analysis anyway. And also, it's only for liquid products that you can outsource the risk management. So for interest rate swaps, for corporate CDS, everyone will agree on how to do margin. I did that for a living for part of life, and I claimed I was the only one in the world who could do it, but it's not true. Anyone, <laughs> uh, anyone could do a job on those, on those uh, simple products. The harder products, like something on aluminum at a locale, you could not possibly clear because no one would trust someone else. And certainly a mortgage, some sort of complicated mortgage security, no one would, a serious trader would not outsource the margin and the risk management of those to somebody else. So a clearing is great for risk management, but only for liquid products, mostly for small players. The other reason we really love uh, clearing is netting of payments. So if I do 100 trades in a day with 40 different counterparties, I don't want to have to send out checks, you know, 20 checks to, to get 20 checks and to pay 20 checks at the end of every day because I've got to have a lot of money going out when really in the end I could wind up getting nothing. Uh, so that, that, that introduces a lot of risk in the system if you have all those separate payments. And clearing is beautiful because it sort of collapses that. Is that for me, that number? No, okay. <laughs> um, and then finally, the other thing, and this relates to something that Jim said before, the thing is beautiful about clearing standardized projects. So it's something like wheat futures. If, uh, if uh, I buy from... Marcus, and Marcus buys from Jim. Marcus is basically out. He's bought and sold. He's working in a clearinghouse. He just drops out. So his credit risk doesn't matter anymore. So that's also a beautiful thing that happens naturally for standardized products. Okay, so I'm a big fan of clearing, but I really don't like mandatory clearing, that being forced for every single trade to clear. Um, the first thing to point out is, so only liquid products will be cleared, but in my view, liquid products had nothing to do with the financial crisis. So it's kind of odd that something that had nothing to do with the crisis is sort of such a big part to clear the liquid products. Um, just to point out, a lot of people, this is really against nothing that's said here, it's more in reporters who got, a lot of people write that central counterparties eliminate counterparty risk. And that's not true, they just mutualize the risk. So if I'm a big dealer and I spread out my trades across all my other counterparties, there are 10 big derivative dealers, I have a tenth of exposure to each of the other 10 counterparties. If I do a clearinghouse, I'm still in the, still, I'm still responsible for a tenth, right? There are, there are subtleties around that argument, but that's basically the idea. It's, it mutualizes, not eliminates the risk. Um, <clears throat> for very liquid products, CCPs, I think, are just as good as, as other people for, ma for managing the risk, but not particularly better. One danger of CCPs is, you know, so Marcus said that uh, sort of bilateral margin rules can change, but the, the central, the, counter, the uh, clearinghouses are allowed to change margin at any time as well. So they could also increase margin. And when they do it, they're going to do it at the same time for everyone, as opposed to if we have 100 different models of different people who are trading, 
It's not 100, let's be fair. There are 10 dealers, right? So, but at least we have some, some, some not correlation there. They're all going to raise at the same time. Um, that was three, by the way. I haven't been numbering them, so I'll number them. So we only have that. You only got eight to worry about. So um, four is, um, and this is uh, really a key thing about why I don't like mandated, is you lose cross-product diversification. So what do I mean by that? If I am doing... Um, an interest rate swap with someone, and I'm also doing another trade that has interest rate risk, like a repo financing. Uh, the person is probably doing something sensible. The person might have a hedge transaction. The swap is hedging something else. So if I, if I do a swap with that person and do a repo transaction with that person, those two kind of cancel out. If I owe margin on one side, I'll collect margin on the other side. It's kind of naturally, naturally a very safe set of things. My variation margin payments will be very small because every time that one side goes up, the other side tends to go down. So that kind of uh, cancels out. Whereas if I, if I strip out the interest rate swap and make that cleared, now I've got a lot of risk because now I'm facing only one side of the trade, which is going to go up and down a lot. That doesn't mean we shouldn't clear anything, but there are situations when the cross-product diversification is more important than the lots of trades within one product. Uh, five. So. People jump a little too quickly to say margin is always good. Okay, so I'll give you one set of situations where you don't want to take margin, and this is what we call the CVA business model. So if I'm doing a business with a bunch of counterpart, a lot of counterparties that are real hedgers, okay, so they're not the people we want to demonize synthetics, however big they were, right? So you know, these are uh, people who are hedging. So a pension fund who's doing an interest rate swap against liabilities, or other people who are doing hedging. So I, as a as a dealer, think that they are pretty safe you know, pretty safe set of assets. So, in, but they, they don't really have, uh, first of all, they don't have margin, but let's say we made them do it. But the business model was, I'm going to charge each of them a little bit of an insurance premium. I'm going to say, listen, I'm doing this trade with you, but you might default. I don't think so. I watch you, you have a hedge position, but I'm going to charge you, an ins- uh, which is called a credit value adjustment, CVA. I'm going to charge you that premium so that if no- a number of you default and my whole client base, I'll be covered, my business will be okay as a whole. If I force all those trades to be cleared so that everyone has to put up margin. Well, I've gotten rid of counterparty risk because I've got this margin, so they're not going to default now. But what have I introduced? Liquidity risk. So now they've got to come up with these variation margin payments all the time. So if markets move a lot in one direction, pension funds and other people who have don't, don't trust, not so easy to raise cash. So I could, in certain situations, just substitute um, liquidity risk for counterparty risk. Um, uh, six is that um, it just quickly, again, initial margin can be very pro-cyclical. The clearinghouses may have to raise margin in a crisis, and in the CVA model that I just described, you don't have to raise margin. There isn't any margin. Uh, seven, we're increasing the demand for collateral a lot, so demand for safe securities that have to be posted. Um, why is that a problem? Well, how, how are we going to get that safe collateral? One thing that's happened, already started to happen, is collateral swaps. So someone's going to take securities that are not that great, give them to a pension fund, get safe securities, and post those to the clearinghouse. But what does that mean? The next time we have trouble, we've dragged the pension funds and the insurance companies who've done these collateral swaps into the crisis. And also, this is another, each of these things we're talking about can take hours and hours to talk about. But, <laughs> but one problem we had in the crisis is there's always, this is just a fundamental thing about financial markets. The demand for super safe liquid assets is enormous relative to supply. 
Okay, again, we can spend a lot of time talking about it, but that's true. And one of the problems in the crisis is we created these asset-backed commercial paper, which was to, to create these sort of what seemed like safe and liquid assets turned out not to be. So by demanding a lot of collateral, we have the risk that we're creating an extra crunch and we're going to wind up creating more super safe things so that we can use the treasuries to post to the clearinghouses. And number eight is just that the, counter, the CCPs have become certainly a too-big-to-fail entity. It's now unthinkable for a CCP to fail because even if it's not that much money lost because we manage it well, we can't let it fail because we can't have trading and all derivatives stop at the same time. So maybe I should pause there. So I want to make sure that <laughs> we have time for audience questions and we could keep going through this, I think, for another three hours and still not get through everything. So what I'd like to do is, <laughs> Dr. Stanley, if you could give your response to what uh, Professor Tuckman has just discussed, and then we'll get your reaction, Mr. Rario, and then we'll do final thoughts and then open the floor to everybody. Right. So. Well, a number of things that Bruce said are true, uh, and there are clearinghouses don't get rid of risks; they they repackage risks, and the in particular the models that that clearinghouses use for margining are crucially important, and they're crucially important for regulators to to oversee. Because if if they're done wrong, you know you can get yourself you know a lot of trouble. Uh, with, uh, with clearing houses, and you can lose out on a lot of uh, the risk management benefits. So regulators are looking at and thinking about a, a lot of these issues. I think just to, ta- to kind of take step back and take a more macro look at clearing houses, you know, clearing houses have been around since the mid-19th century, and a U.S. clearing house has never failed in 150 years of experience. A U.S. clearing house has never failed. Uh, so th- this this tells you a little something about why people wanted to turn to clearinghouses. And uh, I was at a presentation with Andrew Lowe, an MIT professor, you probably know him, and he was talking about uh, risk management at the big, uh, the big too big to fail global banks. And both these guys were risk managers at, at a global bank, so don't don't get offended by this. But um, <laughs> but what he said was that uh, getting one of these big global too big to fail banks to do good risk management is kind of like getting a teenager to clean up his room. Like they know that maybe they'll admit that they should do it, but it's by far not their favorite activity, and you got to nag them a lot. And even when you nag them, they do a half-assed job. And uh, the the, the truth is there are a lot of incentive reasons for that because uh, you've got a lot of different businesses mixed together that you've, across a lot of different subsidiaries. There's, there's a lot of, uh, of complexity there uh, just because of the sheer number of things you do. And frankly, you can make short-run profits and increase your salary short-run by doing bad risk management at a bank. You know, this is just sort of a, a fundamental in, incentive that if if, a, if you don't notice and see a risk and you're just booking the profit and the risk is off in the future, then, you know, that can be beneficial to you in the short run. Well, clearinghouses are a little like, as compared to that teenager cleaning up his room, they're a little like the maid service. Uh, they exist only to do uh, risk management. And there can be some market incentives to do bad risk management in clearinghouse, but fundamentally it's not the same as when you're at a bank and you can get a gigantic bonus by potentially overlooking risks. Clearinghouses exist to do risk management. That's their specialization. Uh, that's what they do. And they centralize risk where you can look at it and hopefully manage it better. But you know, if you don't manage it right, then clearinghouses are, are, could indeed be dangerous. 
So what's your view as an insider? Uh, you're familiar with the Dodd-Frank reforms. Are these going to be effective? Uh, well, I, I think that yes and no. I mean, I think there will be parts of it that will be effective. Um, I think the, the fascination with exchanges is, is really miswrought. I think that that's not a, it's not a great feature of the, of the uh, legislation, uh, both from you know, exchange trading as well as mandatory clearing. Um, and I, you know, it, it is true that, uh, although I haven't looked it up, but it is probably true that, like the, that no exchange has failed in 150 years. But we also said that housing prices never went down. And, and you know, those are when you, one of the issues is that you change the rules. And, and again, this goes back to what I was saying before about there's a lot of blame to go around when, you know, when the government changed rules around how they wanted uh, subprime le- lending to be done. You know, you change the rules in, in Dodd-Frank. You change the rules in terms of how people have to do something to an exchange. You create, in and itself, a different environment than it was for 150 years. So it's dramatically different, I think. And, the, and uh, you, can, you can concentrate the risk of, of uh, these positions so much as to be, you know, the, uh, to be, I think, a very scary proposition, actually. But... Um, so I think that there will be good and bad things around. I do think that transparency is a, is a, is a major feature, and the margining is a major feature of, of Dodd-Frank and other regulatory regimes that's extremely important for the OTC market. So making sure that people are uh, posting collateral to each other and, and having rules around that is very, very important. Um, and it's, it's, it will change in a good way uh, the, you know, the cost of doing the th- of, of doing things that are non-essential. So the really complicated derivatives that probably don't have very much value to uh, people other than people creating them um, will, go, will tend to go away as it becomes more costly to, do, to trade derivatives and, and post collateral against them. So then, then it becomes the, the utility function of the derivatives market becomes more real in terms of you have an end user who needs to do something and there's a real need for it. So I think that's, that will be beneficial in, in terms of the legislation. And I'd like to just go down the row and have brief last thoughts. We didn't get into recommendations as much as I might have liked to, but um, so last thoughts, and then we're going to open the floor for questions. Um, well, hmm. <laughs> well, I just one one comment just about uh, the clearinghouses not having failed. I think one of the reasons is, is they they chose to do the most liquid securities that they've created, and I actually think the regulators are being quite sensible. No one seems to be pushing illiquid products into clearing. Um, but I think that's why we've had such a good record. They've chosen to do safe things. Um, I, would, I would like to just do two quick recommendations because I think one area of agreement we definitely have is, is the opaqueness. I just think that it's so hard to figure out what a financial institution is doing. I, I tend to blame the kind of accounting regime we have. It's sort of very difficult for managers to step out and say something different from what are the required funds of accounting. And we really need to improve that. And having a long list of swaps trades is not going to do that. I mean, you need a holistic, some way to get a better. Actually, um, I have a quote here that Marcus wrote in one of his papers, which I wanted to bring, which is <laughs> wonderful. It says, we've got to get lots of eyes on, on what's happening in institutions. There's just not enough information to do that now. So I think that's a big change we need to have. And the other thing to change, I do think the safe harbors that I mentioned are just way too wide. In other words, that um, what AIG did with those mortgages should not have had a should not have had a 
um, priority in bankruptcy treatment. And I have papers about that. You can read about that. And I think if we tighten those up, we'd, we'd avoid some of the really illiquid derivatives that we don't want to see around. Well, um, yeah, it's, I, I, I don't quite know how to, uh, to sum it all up. But, but I, I guess I would say, and, and we could, you know, you could have a, a day-long conference on this, uh, derivatives uh, have been around for a, a very, very long time. But something really did change over the last 10 or 20 years uh, in terms of the use of derivatives in financial engineering and in, in the creation of, um, you know, a great deal more derivative exposures than there, there ever have been in the, in the financial markets. And you could kind of see it in that chart that I, I put up. Uh, derivatives, to an extent that un, unless you, you, you know, are somehow professionally involved with it, de, de, derivatives are uh, sort of a, a key tool and component in all kinds of things that are done in in the financial markets. They've they've become really really central. Um, and as I said, this is a new development. And even though de- relatively new development, and even though derivatives do bring some benefits and can be used for beneficial purposes, I think uh, it's reasonable to look at whether there's there's been an overshooting and whether some of these ways in which derivatives can enable leverage and hide risk uh, are, are maybe bad reasons that their use has, has grown so much, and that we should be comfortable if margining and if some of the things that we do from a regulatory perspective shrink the derivatives market. Um, we should be comfortable with that, I think, because I, I think that there, there probably has been overshooting over uh, recent decades in the financial markets. I, w- I would actually, I mean, I would agree with that, actually. I think that the, you look at the growth of the derivative balances over, you know, the relevant time frame that we were looking at before, and that's, that's grown significantly faster than GDP has. So, like, you, you can, and, and so I'd leverage in that period as well. So uh, I think they're all very related issues, and so we're seeing a natural uh, pullback with the help of regulation of the size of these balances, and the, the important part of making sure that as in, in order to have very functioning, uh, solid and functioning capital markets, like they, derivatives are an important part of it. But there, there do need to be things uh, done to make them, uh, quote, unquote, safer and more transparent. And I think um, some of the legislation gets us there. I think in many ways it's, it's misguided, uh, particularly around... Uh, the exchanges, I have, I have a real worry about the exchange element to it. And, um, but, um, but we're getting there, and I think that uh, it's a good debate to have because there needed to be reform. Um, but I think you know, blaming derivatives for the crisis would not be the right thing to do. Um, so I'd like to invite the audience to ask questions. We've got a couple of people in the aisles with microphones. What I ask is that you wait for me to call on you so that we don't have conflicting questions. Um, And when you get the microphone, uh, stand up, give your name and affiliation, and uh, ask your question. So any questions? This gentleman in the front row here. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. Sorry. Ed, Hi, uh, Tip Ghosh. Uh, great discussion. Um, if we're really concerned about systemic risk, um, especially in the mortgage market, uh, shouldn't we 
examine what the underlying asset class is, which is the fact that people didn't put up collateral. Um, majority of the subprime mor- mortgages weren't just based on poor credit risk, but the fact that people put less than a very small percentage down to buy the houses in the first place, which was uh, directly attributable to federal government policy at the time. So to me, um, uh, blaming derivatives is like being against math. I mean, derivatives are only uh, important if you can examine the asset class that the derivative is based on. Um, so if you have some sort of standards uh, for what, what um, Professor um, defined as illiquid, I think it's it's the the transparency issue. I think is more important that you understand what the asset classes are. Clearly, derivatives are a part of it, but if you don't understand what's inside the asset classes, you're going to still have the risk. Well, I mean, I'm not I'm not going to sit here and say that the uh, credit quality of the underlying mortgages is unimportant or was not central to the crisis. I mean, obviously, uh, it was. Um, but I, I will say that the, the regulators, you, you know, I was about to say the regulators weren't stupid, but I'm actually not completely sure about that. But the, the regulators before the crisis knew that there was a potential issue in the subprime market. And in 2006 and 2007, they looked at the subprime market and they said, well, how much uh, how many losses do we think that there will be in the subprime market? How, how many people will fail to pay their mortgages? Uh, and how much will uh, their house value drop? Uh, and how much do we think people will just have to write down the mortgages in the subprime market? And they, they came up with a number, and they compared it to bank capital. And they said, well, this number is less than the capitalization in the banking system. So we think things are going to work out just based on looking at this asset class. Well, they were wrong. And why were they wrong? Well, they were wrong for a bunch of reasons. One reason was that, that the... Um, that these the the uh, exposures in that asset class had been multiplied through resecuritizations and through synthetic securitizations a great deal more than they understood. Uh, that these securities were used in financing in repo financing, so there there was a direct line into liquidity, and that once the liquidity started to go in repo financing. Uh, people would realize they were d- dependent on those entities as derivatives dealers also, and the, the loss of confidence there would cause people to try to pull out money in derivatives. So there was a whole set of liquidity issues going on and vulnerabilities and interconnections in the financial markets that regulators didn't understand, and they didn't predict the liquidity crisis that would emerge from that. And were derivatives part of that set of things that the regulators didn't understand? Very much so, I would say. Norbert Michelle Heritage Foundation. So this wasn't really my question, but now I'll just point out that maybe there's a problem that the regulators who didn't understand derivatives not five years later are going to be in charge of regulating all those derivatives. Uh, but I digress. Uh, my, my question is, uh, do any of you have any uh, specific examples of how Title VII, uh, Dodd-Frank, the, the new rules, the new regime, uh, actually improve transparency? Not just in general, sort of but specific examples of how any of those rules that have been promulgated actually improve the market transparency that we say or that they say we need? 
Uh, sure. Um, well, one example is there, were, there was a, just a report out of the Bank of England looking at uh, derivatives pricing for end users, and they found that derivatives that were traded on these new exchanges, thanks to a mandate, had dropped significantly in price for end users uh, compared to other derivatives. And they went out and they measured that, and they found hundreds of millions of dollars in savings to, uh, to end users. Uh, so that, that was... Uh, would be one specific example. And I think that uh, there's regulatory transparency in terms of capitalization of derivatives. I think there are still issues and, uh, and problems there. Uh, and in terms of, but you know, I think there is an improvement there. And in terms of liquidity risk of derivatives, we have a liquidity coverage ratio that specifically looks at the liquidity drains that could be coming from uh, derivatives and regulators are imposing that. So. I would, I would agree with that. I, mean, I think that, that the liquidity has improved in certain areas, and then um, you have, uh, although it still has to be worked out, is that the, the reporting requirements for positions, I think the, the data set is so massive that everybody's really struggling with how to use it. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, major, it's a major issue. Um, and if, you know, I forget, there was one estimate that we had uh, where if we had to meet every, every regulatory obligation around what we had to report, then we had to invest 10 million in a new server farm for, uh, this was when I was at Barclays, 10 million pounds in a new server farm to like just, just deal with the massive amount of data requirements. So I think eventually we'll figure that out, but I think it is important for regulators to have the look in terms of what positions are and how they net across counterparties. I think that is very important. Uh, but it, it still needs to be proven out. I think something that Bruce said before is related to this, where he said we need a better means of accounting for derivatives, which I think is, uh, is, is really true, because just getting, just sort of dumping that giant list of derivatives on people yeah. isn't, isn't yeah. going to do it. And that, that is a very, very difficult data set to, uh, to deal with. And, and the question is, you know, how do you aggregate it so it's economically meaningful and people can uh, respond in the right way to it? But before the crisis, you know, when the regulators went into these big banks, they found they couldn't even do risk aggregation. They couldn't even sum up their sort of net exposures, who they owed money to, who owed money to them at the level of the entire bank. And derivatives were certainly part of that. It wasn't the only set of exposures that weren't understood. But that ability to do risk aggregation and just understand who owes what to who seems to me critical. And investment, you know, if, if some financial investment is necessary to be able to do that, I think that's okay. And it creates jobs, too. So, you know, people say government can't create jobs. Here we are. But, and then people complain about it when government does. So I don't, I don't get it. I just, I just want to make one comment. I, it's windows. a project that I would love to do, and I haven't had the time to do it, so I throw it out, whoever wants to do it, is that um, a lot of the complexity happens because... Uh, firms are responding to a lot of regula regulations and tax rules. So a lot of the complexity of organizations come from the original rules. So we're in a strange place where we're keeping all the rules in place and then trying to figure out how to make it more transparent given those set of rules. And it would be great for someone to dig in and say, hey, which, which, which underlying regulatory and tax things can we change um, so that there won't be an incentive to create such complicated structures? This gentleman Hi, my name is Glenn Barnes, and uh, I'm quasi-retired, but I used to be the global head of credit derivatives and structured finance at Merrill Lynch and UBS. Um, so 
hence my questions. Um, you haven't really, I think, made your case very well um, that derivatives were a cause. I think it's quite clear they're an uh, aggravating factor um, for the crisis. There's no question about that. But two general observations. One, uh, I think, well, I know, in the market now, the degree of concentration risk um, has arisen in two ways. One you mentioned, which is the um, concentration of transactions within clearinghouses. And at the end of the day, clearinghouses are nothing but big CDOs uh, in some sense. And the second one is the, the dealers themselves. So a lot of banks now are essentially in the CVA business. They, they do derivatives with corporates and they charge credit spreads for it. And so in fact, they're lending uh, money to corporations, making money that way. But the dealers themselves, those who are actually providing liquidity to the market, it's a much smaller group of banks now than it was uh, pre-crisis. So if you look at the market share of the largest dealing banks now, particularly in the United States, it's the top six or so. Uh, in Europe, it's about five. Um, they have an incredibly large percentage of the market, both for liquid derivatives, o OTC derivatives, and in some sense, more importantly, the, um, the, the, less, um, the less liquid, more structured derivatives. And this is something that's been caused by uh, regulation. A lot of banks have decided to, to go into other businesses or, or, or treat derivatives as sort of niche businesses as opposed to, to mainstream businesses. Um, so I think that's perhaps an unintended consequence, frankly, uh, because now you have more concentrated risk in both of these ways than you did pre-crisis. Uh, pre and, and some of the, the comments about the Lehman unwinds, I think, were quite interesting as well. I mean, right now, for example, just, just as a data point, um, uh, there's a secondary market in derivative claims uh, on Lehman. And right now, it trades anywhere oh, just under 50 cents uh, on the dollar and for Schedule A, uh, once for those of you who understand that. But basically, right now, I think what's going on with the Lehman uh, unwind is sort of proving some of the things that were thought at the time were not necessarily uh, quite, quite correct because there were a lot of legal issues in the Lehman unwind that affected the valuation, not just the, the, uh, the economic position. Same with AIG. I think AIG, if you look at the resolution, the actual losses on some of the um, portfolios that they were insuring and that they were sort of so-called super senior AAA pieces, the actual losses that they incurred were much less than the mark-to-market -market losses that were forced because of the liquidation of the time, which is an accounting issue. And the other thing I don't think you mentioned, which I'd like to like hear you to talk about as well, is the role of the rating agencies, because I think their, their, their role here is huge in terms <coughs> yeah. of the gentleman made the comment about uh, the underlying risk, uh, particularly with, with, uh, with mortgages. Um, and they were a very key element to that. And I think that also feeds into a lot of the data that you were referring to, particularly from the Fed. Most of the data I note that you referenced uh, was from that source, which heavily relied on rating agencies, among others. And so I'm just curious um, how you see the, 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 the general effect there. Sorry for so many questions. <laughs> well, the, the rating agencies were absolutely central to the crisis. There's no question about that. Uh, the data that I was looking at did not come from the, the rating agencies. It came from Bank of International Settlements and from economists kind of dissecting <coughs> these, uh, these securitizations. I, I think what you said in terms of cause versus aggregating factor, to me that can become a little bit semantic. I mean, um, if something 
isn't the initial cause of a crisis, but it makes it twice as bad, you know, it's definitely involved with the crisis. I mean, Bernanke likes to talk about triggers versus vulnerabilities. You know, there's the trigger, the thing that sets it off, the vulnerability, the thing that makes it so damaging. You know, um, in, in terms of, uh, of some of the, uh, y- you know, what we see about the valuation of the AIG, uh, the stuff that AIG wrote CDS on or some of the derivatives uh, implications in, in uh, Lehman, you know, the crisis was a, a liquidity crisis. Um, so a, a liquidity crisis emerges at a point in time out of people's fears and uncertainty about solvency. And if five years later it's shown that, well, maybe, you know, you shouldn't have been so afraid, uh, that's really kind of academic. Uh, because people were afraid, and because they were afraid, they stopped lending to each other. And because they stopped lending to each other, you know, millions of jobs were lost, and, and bailouts were triggered, and, and on and on. So, um, you, you know, th- those are, are I, I guess. Oh, and in con- terms of concentration, that's related, I think, to this general problem. I mean, coming from Merrill Lynch, you know how some of that concentration, increase in concentration, happened. After the crisis, there were there were failures, there were forced marriages, there were increases in concentration that were enabled by the the regulators, and in some cases forced by the regulators, and none of that has been uh, that that has not really been unwound in terms of forcing breakup of of some of those institutions. So, yeah, I, I would just comment that so Dodd Frank has an interesting aspect that it it combines systemic risk issues with uh, competitiveness of markets. So it's trying not only it's the goals to make the derivatives markets safer, but also to make them more competitive. The, so the question is, what's that doing there? I think the best argument the drafters would say is they think a market with lots of smaller dealers would somehow be more stable than, uh, than another. St- but we have gotten the perverse outcome that you say that it has actually gotten more concentrated. Uh, Scott, the lady in the scarf over here? I think I have a less serious question. Have any, any of you, have you seen The Big Short? And <laughs> what is your reaction to this movie? I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. I was supposed to see it yesterday, actually. And then, uh, then my, my kid needed me at home, so I didn't see it. But, uh, but, but that uh, the Big Short is all about the role of credit default swaps, I guess, really. I, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it either. Sorry about that. Sorry. Uh, I think we have time for one more question. Uh, this gentleman over here by the wall. Thank you. Uh, I'm Stephen Kennedy. I'm with ISDA in New York. Um, and I, I guess I have a comment and a question. My comment is, I, I think what I heard was that there's a general consensus that's just that systemic risk issues, such as they were, that were related to derivatives in the financial crisis, were primarily related to credit default swaps in AIG situation. The policy prescri- prescriptions for the derivatives markets affected the other 95% of the market that's not CDS. And many of the challenges that we discussed today, whether it's margin or liquidity or CCP too big to fail, actually aren't related to credit default swaps, which were the problem and presumably the target of the legislation, but they affect the rates market. I, I think I said both those things. You did. 
the, I, I, I said that systemic risk was not mostly due to <laughs> derivatives, and I said that. Well, the, no, I mean, and I said yeah. that the solution is on the particular part of the market that had absolutely no trouble. I guess my question would be, there's been some knock-on effect from a small part of the derivatives market that tarnishes the overall market. Rates, interest rate derivatives are 90% of the market. CDSs are 5%. Don't you think more balance needs to be given to that, that context as, as we discuss regulatory reform? Well, yeah, this is, this is a, a something that comes up a, a lot. I, I would say that CDS are probably more than 5% of the market when it comes to the actual market exposure or market value compared to, uh, to notional value. But that, that's because the, the ratio there is different than, than the rates market. But I think there, the, the CDS market should be an area of special emphasis, but I don't think that the CDS market was the only kind of derivative involved in the crisis because the, the interconnection risk and the run risk, liquidity risk created by derivatives markets uh, went beyond the CDS market. And it was related to the fact that these big banks at the center of Wall Street who were getting in trouble during the crisis were also major global derivatives dealers with numerous counterparties who were dealing over the counter with unclear margin rules and unclear uh, risk management. So when Lehman failed with a million, uh, almost a million open derivatives positions, not all those derivatives positions are, you know, a lot of those derivatives positions are, are interest rate swaps. When people, you know, Bernanke talks about how uh, derivatives counterparties were starting to try to get away from Goldman and Morgan, you know, even entities that were healthy, they were trying to rehypothecate their derivatives away um, and cancel out their derivatives position. That was creating a liquidity run and liquidity pressures on those big derivatives dealers. So the interconnection risk and the... Uh, the margin calls were went well beyond CDS, I think. Just for the, uh, for the audience, so to Mr. Kennedy's point, so you have CDS on corporate bonds, which also were not an issue at all in the crisis. We're talking about even a smaller part of CDS, which is CDS on mortgages. Well, I think that's all we have time for. Thank you very much. I invite you to join us for lunch. You go up the spiral staircase upstairs. Um, and please pick up a copy of Professor Tuckman's paper out in the hallway. If you don't want more paper, it's online at cato.org. So thank you very much to our speakers. Thank you.